You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. I'm going to say something this morning, um, giving you a heads up. Um, over the next half hour as I speak, at one point I will embarrass myself. It's coming, so just be ready for it. Uh, I'm going to share a part of me that is very revealing and unfortunate for me and very entertaining for you probably. So uh, enjoy. Uh, we are going through the book of Acts. We're a church that believes that every part of the, bo- the Bible is for us. Uh, you can go New Testament, you can go Old Testament, and all of it reveals who God is. I know a lot of times we think, why would anybody go to the Old Testament? It's just a bunch of stuff that happened before Jesus. Well, all of it points up to Christ, and all of it bears parallels to Christ's work in us and who he is for us. And in the New Testament, we see him revealed to us. Make sense? We, we went through the book of Mark where we see the life of Christ displayed for us and how Christ should impact who we are. Now we're in the book of Acts, which is, it's a strange word, Acts. Like that's what it's called, the book of Acts. Basically, it's the Acts of the Apostles. It's what they did when Jesus was no longer here, when he ascended into heaven and when the Holy Spirit came. So we are looking at the Acts of the Apostles and saying, how do I make this applicable for my life today? How am I still the church as they were the church then? How are we still the church now? So that's what we're looking at if you're visiting us. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, and we're in the book, uh, chapter 8 of the book of Acts today. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, um, and we also have it on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible, we want every person to have a Bible. Uh, we believe that it is the Word of God that gives us life. We can't, I can't live without the Bible And thank God for the printing press, which makes it available for everybody. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. That's yours to keep. You can take it home with you. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Let me go back. The end of chapter 7, we see these early church leaders. We see what's called deacons. They're appointed to serve the widows and, the, and still preach the gospel. They're they just Christians who are serving the church. And we see Stephen who is, he angers the church leaders, like not the Christian church, but the Jewish synagogue, the, the priests. He angers them by speaking Christ and, and seeing miracles. And they stone him. They, that means in that culture, they take real stones and throw it at him. Stoning has a lot different context uh, and application for us today. Stoning, they threw large rocks at his head. Not a good day for Stephen. Uh, And we see in the midst of that, as they're throwing stones, Stephen looks into heaven and he can still, in the midst of people throwing rocks at him, he asks for their forgiveness and he says, I see Jesus. He looks at Jesus as his ultimate prize and can, it says that he went to sleep. He what we literally believe is he, he died, but he also was so at rest that he went to sleep. That he didn't have to worry about the stones being thrown at him because he saw who Jesus was. So that's what we just saw in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, that's what happened. And when they heard him, 
and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. So here's what's happening. Stephen, with the death of Stephen, starts a whole new phase for the church. Christ comes, he's crucified, he's resurrected, he proclaims the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you will be my disciples and witnesses throughout the whole earth, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But don't go yet until the Holy Spirit's here. So the Holy Spirit shows up, and they have this amazing, like, revival. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. And there's a little bit of persecution. They're locked up a few times. The angels are letting them out. But it was pretty safe, even in the midst of persecution. They still preach the gospel. And then all of a sudden, Stephen, who was asked to just take care of the widows who weren't being fed, that was his job. He was to take care of widows. But in the midst of taking care of widows, he still preached the gospel. He still saw miracles happen when he prayed for people. And then... Religious leaders get angry, and he's stoned, and he's killed. Stephen is the first martyr that the church has ever experienced. And from that moment on, we see Saul was ravaging the church, entering house to house and dragging them off into prison. This is the beginning of the persecution of the church. This is the beginning when the gospel is not received, but instead people are dying for the cause of the gospel. What do I mean by gospel? It's the good news. It's the proclaiming of Jesus as Lord. This is the first time we see that happen. Persecution has started here because the good news is being spread. Now first, before we get into the rest of this message, I, I want to I ask two questions that we have to look at. Who is Philip? Because we go from talking about Stephen, Saul persecuting the church, and then we see this Philip who is, he leaves because the church in Jerusalem is being persecuted, but what is he doing? He went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them Christ. Philip also was one of the first deacons with Stephen. His job was to take care of widows. And so now all of a sudden, they're being persecuted for the faith. So instead of just running and hiding somewhere, he's like, well, if i got to run, I'm still preaching Jesus because it's all that I know. And so when he's doing this, he goes to Samaria and proclaims Jesus, and demons are literally coming out of people when he prays over them. Man- people manifesting demons are coming out. Paralyzed people are restored. Miracles are happening, and crowds are gathering. If you're on the run, probably not a good idea to gather a crowd around you. Probably not a good idea to put up a billboard and say, hey, in case you were looking for the guy who's preaching the gospel, he's right over here. This is the response that Philip has. He still is running, but he's running and preaching. You guys see the, like the drastic, it's only me who finds this really ironic. Nobody else is, is, is in this this morning. Philip here, he started out a deacon for the widows. And let me just give you, we'll talk about Philip as we go through the book of Acts a little bit more. But let me, let me tell you who he is before we get into the rest of this. Philip was supposed to be a deacon. But throughout his life, he ends up traveling and becoming known as Philip the Evangelist. We'll see in the next few weeks how at one point Philip is preaching a message to an Ethiopian eunuch and then all of a sudden he disappears. God transports, this is the first case of teleportation. He literally is transported over 20 miles to another location and starts preaching there. 
That's a pretty exciting story. How many of you guys have ever teleported before? Anybody? No? Okay. Philip did. God came, he said, hey, I need you to go this way to, to and preach to this eunuch, and then I'm, just take some away. That would be an exciting morning for me, okay? I, I don't know about you. This is who Philip is. And not only did he have the opportunity to teleport and to continue to see miracles and demons coming out of people and, and ca- casting them out and seeing lame people come to health, we see at the end later in Acts chapter 21, I believe, that we see that he has daughters at this point, 20 years later, and he's still proclaiming the gospel. He's known as Philip the Evangelist, and he has four daughters. All of them are prophets. His daughters have a lineage of flowing in the Spirit, of being on mission with God. So a guy who starts out as just, hey, I need you because you're a good leader in the church. I need you to take care and feed the widows, has now become Philip the Evangelist, who's got multiple prophet daughters and is teleporting. That's a pretty awesome life, to me anyway while being on the run. (laughs) We should make a movie about that. That's an awesome blockbuster movie. That's who Philip is. We also got to look, where did did Philip go in this passage? He went to Samaria. So we have to ask ourselves, who are the Samaritans? Samaritans are those who lived in Israel while the Israelites, God's chosen people, were in captivity in Babylon. Babylon. Okay, so they're in captivity for Babylon for generations, right? And they come back to their homeland, and all of a sudden people are there. And they're living there, and they don't want to move, and they kind of believe what you believe, but with major, major differences. Get it? These are not people that Jews thought highly of. Philip, as a good Jew, should have been like, I don't want to go there. Samaritans are not somebody a Jew would associate with. But this is where he heads to. This is where he takes the gospel of Jesus. This is where he shows love and is willing, willing to be persecuted. When you proclaim Christ, you have to be willing to be persecuted, and especially Philip. The persecution of the church has just started. He's just seen his friend Stephen killed. And his response is, I'm going to take this message, something that could get me killed, to the people that we shouldn't be in a relationship with. The people who started living in our homeland. Imagine someone, um, this is kind of a silly story, but imagine somebody kidnapped you, right, for a few years. And you go home and somebody's living in your house and they refuse to live. It's basically the story of the Israelites and the Samaritans. Like, we're gone because we have to be. Babylon has cap- taken us. We're back. Oh, you're here now. Please get out. No, we won't get out. We'll move to this spot. And we'll kind of believe in your God, but we will not believe in your God the way you want us to believe in your God. This is a stressful... These, the Samaritans are lesser than people. The Samaritans were always viewed as somebody beneath the Jewish people. They were kind of like the half-breeds. That's honestly what they would call them. They would believe in them to be half-breed Jews. Not quite the Jews that we are. Not me, but them. You you know what I'm talking about. So Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They They were considered lesser than. When we look at this passage this morning... I I still see that today there are those of us who are called to be modern Philips. And there are those of us who are modern Samaritans. Today's Philips and today's Samaritans. Let's look at today's Philips. 
First off, how, what, how many of you guys have made a plan? Like, this is the plan for my life. This is what I'm going to do. Course A, right? And then something major happens, and that is no longer an option. When that happens, how do we respond? We get pretty whiny, don't we? We get pretty mopey. Uh, that, that's a good happy word, or uh, a good nice word to describe how we act. When something doesn't go the way we desire, especially if it's a major, major course of life, we get very whiny. And before we talk about Philip, let me, I can only share with you my experience of this, okay? In my life, I've had many plans, trajectories for myself. Uh, I've talked to a few of you about how I wanted to be a film major, and God put that on halt, and I, I wanted to be in Hollywood. That was not a plan, or that was not his plan. But there are other things, too, that I had a plan. I remember I grew up in church, and my desire was always, I'm going to date a girl, and the first girl that I, I, I date will be the one that I marry. I want to love God and love my wife. I just want this happy, God-loving family right out the gate. And I want to do it right. And so at like 18, 19 years old, I'm getting married. Like, that was my plan, right? That was a dumb plan, just so you know. But that was my plan. So at 18 years old, Ashley and I started, started dating. Not marrying. That would be weird. We started dating. And for those of you who don't know, about three months into it, Ashley broke up with me. Go ahead. Come on. Give me that sympathy I'm looking for. Oh, yeah. Crushed my little heart, man. Just destroyed it. And if you don't know, we didn't talk to each other for three years. I, I, I think I might have saw her once during that process. I didn't talk to her. I was, ask my sister, they're here visiting today. That first week after Ashley broke up with me, how was I? It was pretty, she, she said these words, I want my brother back. That's what she said to me. <laughs> this is the part where I'm revealing myself to you. And I, I didn't eat for like a week, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I was so heartbroken because all my plans were just shot. I'm like, for, I always thought the first girl I date is the girl that I'm going to be married to, which it happened. We are married, but not the way I planned it. I was hoping, like, we'll date now and we'll be married in a year. Like, that was my thought. After three months of dating her, I was, re- I was ready, right? And we broke up. She crushed my heart. And here's the part where I really embarrassed myself. This little book here, you will have to pry this out of my hands one day if you, if you ever want to read this book. This book here, when I was a teenager... I did this thing called poetry. A lot. A lot, a lot. And I don't crack this book open very often because it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, some of it's pretty creative. Some of it's just wow. Wow. <laughs> and this morning, I want to share with you a little poem that I wrote shortly after Ashley broke up with me. It, so please, Rich, turn off the recording device. Um, I'm kidding. You can keep it going. Man, this is, this is thick. I'm just, I'm just, I'm talking about how when our plans change, how we get mopey, right? And sometimes angry. I'm not even going to read the really angry ones because that wouldn't be good for my relationship today. <laughs> it's called My Careful Heart. I'm, I'm, hey, I was 18 people, come on. <laughs> Goes, with your lies undetected and your thoughts not suspected, I believed you. And I bought into these dreams, as big as they, as they may seem, 
I should have left you. With all this wishful thinking, this love boat started sinking, but I'm drowning alone. (laughs) Now you left me here confused and feeling abused, waiting for a ring from my phone. And I'll be careful next time. My heart won't be so open, and you'll be be left hoping you never left me. So leave me now. Take your last chances. There's no room for second glances. You lost my love for good. I won't be found reminiscing, and you'll be known as always wishing you never left me. (laughs) There we go. It's creative and very, very sad (laughs) and angry. When things don't go our way, we get so mopey, don't we? We get so deep into this pit of despair. And in my mind, I can only think, and this is completely different than what they're going through here in the book of Acts. But if I'm Philip, or if I'm even Stephen, and the church is growing drastically, and people are coming to faith, and this is the plan, I'm going to be taking care of the widows. We got the first mega church. It's blowing up. We all got responsibilities and jobs and duties, and everybody's happy, and God is bringing increase. And then all of a sudden, the stones start flying. Then all of a sudden, I'm not in my comfortable church doing my comfortable career or doing my plan for my life. All of a sudden, I'm leaving my hometown because people are chasing me. This man named Saul is going house to house and ravaging those homes and capturing Christians and imprisoning them and seeing to their execution. Saul approved of the execution. During that time where Ash broke up with me, (laughs) it's during that time where I was really completely confused that I got closer to God than I had ever been in my life. And I I would say that during this time of real persecution, Philip all of a sudden got a true vision for what he was called to do. I've experienced Jesus. And so I might have to run. I'm not running toward the death chamber. I'm not running to prison. But if I'm running, I'm still preaching all that I know to be true. I'm still going after his kingdom. See, not everything during those three years that we were apart was fun. But I'm very thankful that I grew drastically during those three years in ways I would have never have predicted. And she would say the same thing. That God did something in the midst of my, my plan going off course. God changed who we are. In his grace and love, he put us back together through strange circumstances in ways that I wouldn't predict. And what I would say is, that, I mean, that's a silly example of what's happening here, but, but the things in your life that you think are the worst persecution you've ever experienced or the worst change of your plans, that lost job, that lost relationship, that... that that loved one who had died, or whatever it is, I'm saying in the midst of the things that you didn't put on your plan A, God might be taking you somewhere else, and you have to be able to say, God, I'll still praise you in this. That's why Job, whenever his family was destroyed, his property eliminated, and his health gone, he could say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blesses the name of the Lord. Because he knew God was bigger than what he could see in the plans for himself that he had written up. 
Philip, in this moment of persecution, and the church, I love this, it says they were scattered and went about preaching. When you and I think of scattered, we think run because we're afraid and just hide. They didn't do that. Scattered here means, no, we're going, we're going somewhere because we can't stay here, but we're preaching him everywhere we go. That is the mindset of the early church. And I love that Jesus says, you will take this, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He didn't say, hey, and the, the course that's going to get you guys to do that is going to be people who are throwing stones and trying to kill you. He didn't say that, but that's what, it, that's what it took. That's what it was to set the church to grow and expand and the gospel to pre- be preached everywhere. We have to stop looking at everything that comes our way as another problem or another obstacle and start looking for new ways to declare his joy and his salvation and to begin to thank him this is what we have to do we have to in those moments where our plan has just been crushed we have to thank him that his plan is bigger than the one that our mind can come up with it's bigger than what we have planned for ourselves that's what we have to do with every moment that says your plan's done we have to say god i thank you that your plan's not done When the stones started flying, do you think P- Philip thought, oh great, God wants me to experience teleportation and, and miracles and travel and children with spiritual gifts? Do you think that's what th- went through his mind? No. He had no clue that was coming. But he still went on a mission anyway. He still trusted and said, I'm, I'm preaching this. He said, if I'm on the run, I'm preaching. You can, here's the thing, we can run from death But we should, as believers, never run from the message of Jesus. If my life is is in danger, I still want to experience the joy of the life in Christ and share that with others. So I guess here's the the question that leads us in, in the rest of this. What makes the good news so good? What makes the message of Jesus worth dying for? What makes what Philip had in his heart and what he had experienced worth taking and proclaiming to Samaria, to the people who were opposition of a Jew. What makes it worth it? So here's the other thing. We're, we're going to answer that question, but we have to look at, so what is today's Samaritans then? What is the people who are lesser than, right? Today, the gospel is a message for those who feel lesser than, who feel abused, who feel broken, who feel abandoned, who feel dirty, who feel stupid, who feel worthless. The message is for them. The gospel is a message preached to the Jews and to Samaritans. The gospel is a message for rich and for poor, for sick, for healthy, for the achievers and for the underachievers, for the genius and for the high school dropout. It calls to every woman, man, child, and says you were dead in your sins, but now you can have hope and you can have life in Christ. You can have the joy that your heart's always looked for. You can have eternal life in the presence of God. Like Martin was saying this morning, the good news is that we didn't do anything, but he has done everything so that we can experience everything. You can have purpose for your life today. The good news is that Philip was broken without Christ. Saul, we'll talk about Saul in a minute. 
The, see, this message is so good. This message, the, the gospel is so good and, and beautiful when we really begin to understand it that it, we can't help but be changed and transformed by it. And, and honestly, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to keep it in because it's that good. It's so good that persecution can't stop it, and we have to share it. Just this last month, Elizabeth Elliot passed away. For those of you who don't know who she is, her husband, Jim Elliot, was killed in 1956 as a missionary to the Aqua Indians. I don't know if that's right or not, how to pronounce it, in Ecuador. Her husband was a missionary, and taking this gospel to this unreached people, taking the message of Jesus, he was going there, he was killed by them. And her response, instead of saying, well, they're stupid, they should have received him, they could have just loved him, well, I don't know why they acted that way, they killed my husband, they killed all of plan A. Instead of responding that way, she said, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to him. And she spent two years there proclaiming the gospel, and it was received by them. She just passed away last month. This is somebody, she was somebody who didn't see plan A as the only way. But she saw the power of the gospel worth preaching to the same people who killed plan A. It's that good of a message. It's that good of a gospel. See, this message is, Jesus is hope to the hopeless from the persecuted. You, you might say to me this morning, you don't know how, how bad I am. You don't know how bad my family is. You don't know what kind of background that I have or, or the things that I did. And I would say to you that the very same man named Saul, who was the reason for persecuting the church, we see Jesus gets a hold of in the next few chapters. He forgives him. He gives him a new name, Paul. And he calls him to be the biggest contributor to our Bible and the primary missionary in the first century. That same man who caused the persecution of Stephen. Well, not so much Stephen, but he held their coats so they could throw rocks. You don't want to be hindered when you're throwing rocks at somebody. He held their coats, he approved of it, and he went house to house persecuting people. That same man God grabbed a hold of and said, no, I want you to be mine. That is the beauty of the gospel. I ask you, have you captured any Christians today or this week or this lifetime? Have you tortured them? Have you held the coats of those who could throw stones at them? Did you murder a man in the streets? Right, and right after that man was used by God to heal the sick, did you murder him in the streets? Have you gone house to house capturing Christians? What we do in our, and for some reason, people get this thing in their head and, and in their minds that, you know, I'll come to God or I'll, re- I'll receive Jesus after I make myself better. I've got to be a better person first. That's one of the most common things I hear. And the truth, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the message that propelled Philip and that propelled Stephen and propelled Paul is you don't have to clean yourself up and make yourself better. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about moralism. It's about his love and surrendering, surrendering to his love. Then you become a better person after you experience the gospel. After you experience that you didn't have to do anything first. Somebody should say amen this morning. In him, this is, this is what it is. In him is life. In him is forgiveness. In him is purpose. 
I love that the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It didn't say after you got better, he died for you. It says while you were a sinner, he died for you. Jesus this morning, I want, I want you to hear this if you don't know him, if you don't know him as your Savior. Jesus this morning, he makes exclusive claims. He says that I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. He says that he is God. That he is the Son of God, which is a bizarre thing to begin to understand, but he makes exclusive claims. You cannot say, well, I'll try to figure out Jesus among other gods later, or I like this about Jesus, and I like that about this God, and and that religion, and that faith. Jesus says, no, I am the only way to life. C.S. Lewis says this, that Jesus is either a lord, a lunatic, or a liar. When he says that I am the truth, that I am the only way, he either is Lord of the life, of our life, he is king, he is God, or he's a guy who's insane and believes he's God, or he's just a liar trying to trick us. You can't have Jesus be another good teacher. Because if he was just another good teacher and not God, that man's insane. That's what C.S. Lewis would say. We have to, as people, come to see, is Jesus all that he says he is? And if we've already received him and said, yes, he is, then we should be living that life that propels, proclaims him and sees the goodness of him and proclaims it. You cannot remain indifferent to Jesus. He is either life or he's not. Christianity is not about, I want, I want to say this because we get it so confused in, in today's world. Christianity is not about how do I get to heaven or how do I become a better person. I hear that all the time. That, you know, I want to receive Jesus so I can get to heaven. You don't receive Jesus to get to heaven. You receive Jesus to get Jesus. You receive Jesus to get relationship with the Father. Jared said it before from, from here, from the stage. If Jesus isn't in heaven, I don't want heaven. Jesus is the only thing that brings joy. Harps and gold and mansions in the sky, it'll get old quick. Believe me, it will. Not, not believe me because I've been there. I, I haven't. But Jesus is the only source of joy for my life. And if he's not there, I don't want it. He is the reward. He is what you get. See, and the life that he gives is worth dying for, as many have already done. Jim Elliott, Stephen, and countless, countless others. If, if you know this Jesus and, and you haven't seen that he's bigger than any persecution and more valuable than, than any change in your plans, then I would say that you need to remember what you've been saved from. Who you were before Christ. Because if you've kind of just gotten into this Christian thing, you called him Lord and Savior, you repented and you received him, but you're not experiencing life, then I would challenge you, you need to begin to seek his presence. It's all about abiding in Christ. We've got we to recognize how wicked our heart was and how beautiful his presence is. How amazing his presence is. There's a verse, I was just talking to Ben this morning about this verse as I was looking through it. We've, this verse that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It comes from Psalms. And David's writing this. Um, and, he, and we take that verse to be like this, hey, hey, here's Jesus, or take Jesus, taste him, see that he's good. Trial and error, right? That's not what it is, Okay. It's, we do experience, when you experience Jesus, when you experience God, you will see that he is good, that he's worth everything when you experience him. 
But experiencing him isn't a... Uh, I told the story before about this guy that I knew. I was at a picnic one time, and uh, he's standing there talking to my dad and I, and he's like, you know those uh, Slim Fasts? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I drank one the other day. did nothing for me. That's not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing is surrendering and seeing all that he has to bring. So I'm looking at this verse, right? This verse in Psalms. And David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm studying it. He wrote this. And this story I completely forgot about. I, don't, I honestly don't even remember reading this story. It's in 1 Samuel. But he wrote this Psalms during this time where David was so afraid of this king that, was, that he thought was going to kill him that he literally acted insane and was drooling on himself and scratching at walls because he was so afraid. <laughs> he writes this Psalm in response saying, God, you're so good. You got me out of this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good doesn't mean, hey, every day looks beautiful when you have Jesus. David was drooling on himself. I don't remember that in Sunday school. I don't remember the felt board with David and like big slobber coming down his mouth. Look at me, I'm insane, you know. And then he runs off. He literally, whenever the king sees that he's insane, he's like, what, have you brought me another madman? I have a ton of madmen around here. I don't need another one. So David escapes and goes and hides in the cave. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, not every day is beautiful, but when you experience life in him, you know, God, you've brought me out of a lot of things. You've given me your presence. You've given me the trust in who you are. You've given me joy that goes beyond my current situation where I'm drooling on myself because I'm afraid. (laughs) Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, I would say, is much more surrender for a lifetime than it is for like a quick little bite. I'll taste this. I'll taste that. I'll, I'll do the taste test. One's Coke, one's Pepsi. That's not what it is. Jesus says, no, experience all that I am. Surrender to me and you will know that I am worth everything. That's what this is. So if you've been a a Christian for a while and you're not experiencing this joy, I would say you need to start abiding in Christ, seeking him out, spending time in his presence, and you will see that he's beautiful. This is the gospel that Philip could say, I'm running for my life, but I'm also preaching this everywhere I go, and I don't care if I get caught. If you don't know him this morning, if you don't know this Jesus, and you haven't experienced his life, the life-giving grace, I would say that today is a good day to just simply say, God, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. We make it sometimes this big process, and I think sometimes all this religious background from different churches and denominations make getting saved, if you will, or coming to faith in Christ this big process where we've got to wear gowns and we've got to do all these things, we've got to go to classes. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel simply says to a man like Saul, why were you killing me? Come and experience me so that I can put you on mission for me. That's what it's done to me. And I know a lot of your stories. I know a lot of the brokenness that you guys have come out of. But he saved you, calls you a son. This morning we sang, Be Thou My Vision. And there's a line that hit me this morning and never hit me before. It says, And I thy true son. Too often before God we get this orphan mentality that we're somehow like secondary sons. That we're somehow like pity sons, you know. Like, I really didn't want to take this guy in because he's so bad, but I will. The gospel is... No, you are a mess, but you're my true son now. You're co-heirs with Christ. This is the message of the gospel this morning, and I hope that we can receive this. I hope that we can understand why Philip was able to be scattered, but yet be on mission. This is, this is the message. This is the good news of Jesus. Mm-hmm.